Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hey, everybody, a very special episode of Kego Lasso as I talk to American investor, co-owner and entrepreneur Jordan Gardner. We discuss American investment in Europe, what it takes to run a club, his thoughts on some well-run clubs, on some that are not, and so much more. A great chat with Jordan Gardner. Kego Lasso begins right now. When we discuss about the game on the show, the majority of the time is about the action on the pitch. But before a ball is even kicked, the crucial component of this game and clubs from around the world lies in their development, their vision, and of course, the ownership and investment. Who runs your club and, and what's the vision they have for it? And most importantly, in these days, is the vision sustainable, profitable, and good for the overall market? So it's a pleasure to welcome highly respected investor and entrepreneur Jordan Gardner to the show. Jordan is one of a few well-respected Americans who are investing heavy in Europe. After spending years on the ground, he invested in several clubs and co-owns FC Helsingor in Denmark. Other minority stakes include Swansea City and Dundalk FC from Ireland. He's also a friend, so I'm going to also pitch him some Peruvian players from uh, for his clubs later on. But Jordan, an absolute pleasure to have you to Kego Lasso. Welcome to the show, my man. Thanks, Luis. Appreciate it. Jordan, let's get straight to it. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to start by asking your story. What led you to get to this point and get involved in soccer investment and ownership, specifically in Europe? Yeah, um, it's a long story, so I'll try to kind of keep it pretty short. Um, I had a company that was in um, a, the ticketing and technology space here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I sold that uh, five or six years ago. I'd played soccer growing up pretty close to a professional level, not quite. Um, and when I sold my business about five or six years ago, I wanted to get back into the sport. I didn't know what that looked like, investment, ownership, uh, soccer side, business side. And so I was able to work on a couple projects here in the U.S. And ultimately, I decided that uh, I was just much more interested in European football. My entrepreneurial background was much more suited to that, you know, whether that was you can go in and buy a, a smaller club and get that club promoted. You could sell players. You could buy clubs that were just run poorly. Um, and so that was just really interesting to me. I had a lot of very close friends and um, people I was connected with that were in the European football space. And so I was able to leverage that and get involved in the ownership. And fortunately, I was in a financial position where I could make some kind of strategic investments in clubs. And, uh, you know, honestly, it's it's all happened very organically. One thing's led to another. First thing was a small minority investment in Swansea. Then it was a small minority investment in Dundalk. And I was on the board of that club for a year. And then more recently, over the last two years, it's been a controlling interest of a club in Denmark, FC Helsinger. And um, who knows what the future will hold, but it's been a, it's been a wild ride, that's for sure. Yeah, so that was my next question, to be honest with you. For, for those who, of us who are totally dubious uh, to all of this, what are some of the main challenges that you face uh, in what you're doing? I guess that question is even more emphatic these last 11 months, right? Not just traveling, but also just economically speaking. Talk to me about some of those challenges. 
Yeah, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast talking about what COVID has done to the finances of these clubs. Um, I, I think it's what's what's interesting when you were kind of talking about the introduction. I think so many people um, are interested about the on-field, you know, players and signings and how you know the formations and tactics and all that's very important and that stuff we spend time on. That stuff I spend time on, but so many of these clubs, um, everything starts at the top. Whether it's the culture, the the, the hiring practices of these clubs. Um, I'm just about to record a podcast later and I was, I'm going to talk about Marseille and that's an American group with Frank McCord and all the challenges they're ha- you know, they're having with their coach resigning and fan unrest. And so I think everything in these organizations is tied together and it's not, <clears throat> I think it's a little simplistic for some people to think to silo it. Hey, let's just talk about sporting. Let's just talk about the business, right? It's all, it's all this ecosystem that's tied together. And I think to answer your question, that's the challenge, right? Everything we do when it comes to off the field affects our on the field product and how do we build the right culture and environment. I've talked about this publicly a bit with our club in Denmark, but I was, we bought this club and it had been relegated once and it was about to get relegated again. And I was just stunned at how poorly managed and poorly run this club was. And you could say, okay, yeah, I'll bring in a new CEO and maybe I'll hire a new sporting director, but it went all the way down to the 18th and 19th player on the bench who just did not want to be at the club and was not enjoying their experience at the club. And so, you know, I felt like it was really important to take this kind of holistic view in terms of changing the culture and vision of the club, had to start at the top, but you have to really almost change everything down to even the kit man and everyone involved in these organizations, especially at a small club like we have in Denmark. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And actually, obviously, uh, we were going to get into it and I was going to ask you a little later, but, you know, let's talk about it right now. One of the challenges uh, that I imagine is the fact that these American owners uh, often as well, uh, not just American, but everybody, but I think specifically non uh, owners who are not specifically from that nation or whatever. Uh, I think one of the biggest things, I guess, is, you know, the difference between supporting a club and understanding a fan base. I feel like in the U.S., people go to games, the majority of them, I think, uh, for entertainment value, right? But in Europe, just like South America, it's about, you know, the actual colloquial meaning of what it means to really support a club. The, the experience is so different. Would you say that that's one of the challenges as well, aside from everything that you just said, all the details, but it's also about, you know, uh, paying homage to the, to the identity of a club itself? I completely agree. Now, I think it could depend on the size of the club. I mean, I think things are changing a bit at the bigger clubs. You look at a Tottenham, right, who's just built a brand new stadium. I do think they're running things, obviously putting COVID to the side in a way that's a little bit more American style. And I think they're trying to put on a game day atmosphere and experience that is more than just on-field product. You know, of course, that's a big piece of it. But for all the clubs, the smaller clubs, certainly all the other clubs, uh, you know, our club in Denmark, (laughs) I get asked, you know, we haven't, we had a new stadium open up in Denmark last year and we were expecting huge jumps in revenue and huge jumps in hospitality. And like, it didn't happen. And I I was really kind of surprised about that. Yeah. We had incremental increases, but ultimately if you ask most of our supporters, why do they come to the games? They come to the games because their dad was a fan of the club or their grandpa was a fan of the club. They come to the games because the club is doing well on the pitch or the weather in Denmark, the weather's nice. Right. So it really comes down to factors completely unrelated to are we putting on good food right are we doing a halftime show or any kind of thing from an american style so i think it takes a period of adjustment for american ownership groups in particular to understand the motivations of the quote customer right in this case that's the fan and supporter um i think in general the problem that i see from american groups and again i can only speak to that because those are the most most of the groups i deal with is they kind of fit in two buckets they're in a bucket of um 
they just want to treat this investment in soccer like a business, in which case they don't really necessarily take the time to understand what the fan culture is like and the customer culture is like in Europe and how that's different from America. It's so very different. And the other bucket is, hey, uh, I am a passionate supporter of a club in Europe and I just want to buy it as a play toy, as a, as a vanity play. In which case, maybe the, that those kind of clubs do a better job of splashing money around. But I don't think those are necessarily sustainable visions either because they're not run as businesses and ultimately they end up losing a lot of money. So you know, what we're trying to do a little bit, and again, this is a little bit of a tangent, is trying to mix it, right? It cannot, I, I had a listen to a podcast with Parag Maroth from the 49ers and he was talking about their Leeds investment and I know Parag reasonably well. He's like, look, investments in football clubs, it's not like a stock. It's not like any other normal business. Like it's a, you have to be passionate about it. You have to, but it also has to be a business. So it's like about, you know, kind of weeding both sides of the coin there. Yeah. It's, it, you have to make the most use of that word investment. It's not just financial, but it's everything that goes with it. Uh, that was uh, one thing that I wanted to touch on. You mentioned it, of course, the difference in ownership and the difference in interest. You have, of course, you know, Liverpool with like Fenway Sports Group and, and my Aston Villa co-owned by Wes Edens and Milwaukee Bucks, of course. But then I think about, you know, how it's hit, uh, you know, Hollywood, right? With Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney with Wrexham. What do you make of that situation? Yeah, that's a really, uh, really interesting um, acquisition, I guess you could say, what they're doing at Wrexham. I think originally my first thought was, what are they thinking? Why would you go down and invest in a fifth-tier club in the UK? I mean, again, I don't think anyone has any understanding of what it takes to get a club like that up to the higher levels in the UK. I mean, we're talking tens of millions of pounds investment in years and years. It's so incredibly, you would know this, so incredibly difficult to get clubs promoted. And even if you can get your club promoted, Wrexham back up to, I don't know, League One or the championship, I mean, how? Do, I mean, is it really worth that much more than it was? You'd have to go all the way probably to the Premier League, and that's basically impossible. But once it kind of came out that this was there was more to it, they're doing a Netflix documentary, you start to say, okay, that's more interesting. There's a different business model there. Maybe they can, you know, find, presumably they could sell their Netflix documentary for maybe more than the amount of money they put in the club. They seem to be reasonably passionate about the club. So I think it's it's interesting in a very different way, um, assuming that they understand it shouldn't entirely be focused on the football side being the investment piece. Because if that's what they think it is, it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I'm really glad you just mentioned that uh, because that was actually my next question. I was really interested to see what your thoughts were on the relationship between the filmmaking documentary series process making of, of certain clubs. I mean, of course, you know, we've had it pretty much everything. We saw Leeds United in the All or Nothing series, Manchester City as well, of course. My personal favorite from a creative standpoint, the Sunderland Till I Die one. Uh, what do you make of it? Do you think it's helpful to the club finances aside or is it more of a hindrance? You know, I guess there's a connection as well to what HBO does with Hard Knocks and, and the NFL teams. I think in general, it's a value add for these clubs. I think it creates visibility and, and brings the clubs into new markets. I mean, I know a lot of people here, of course, Sunderland, that documentary, I can't imagine the people at Sunderland are too excited about that documentary because it's always talked about in a negative connotation in terms of what it's like to go through multiple relegations and have a club being run so poorly. But that club has gotten kind of almost a new wave of visibility in markets, let's say like the United States, that there's no way it would have otherwise without that documentary. I think the Leeds documentary was really fascinating seeing what it's like to how Bielsa runs that club from an inside out. Um, you know, I, I think in general, more times than not, it's a positive. What I, my concern would be in this case with Wrexham is like, they've been so 
upfront and apparent that this is basically the reason they bought the club and they're doing it from the beginning. If I was a supporter of that club, I'd be a little bit nervous saying, okay, cool. This is great. We're getting a capital infusion, but are these guys here to actually help the football club grow, get promoted presumably, or are they just here to like see what it's like for a fifth division player in the background and what he does with his girlfriend on the side on the weekends, right? So what's, what's the actual motivation? I guess it depends on what they're, what they're actually in their angle is. Um, but I think in general, to answer your question, it's mostly been quite positive for most clubs. Yeah, right. The biggest question is what happens when the lights go off and the attention goes somewhere else? That club is still there, right? So, you know, there needs to be some, uh, or at least a fan base and the love for it. The funny thing about the Sunderland, by the way, is I talked to the owners. I did I did a lot of it when I was back with Sports Illustrated and it was a happy act. Well, not happy, but an accident where the real original point of that documentary was to, you know, talk about Sunderland's triumphant return to the Premier League and it went a 180 and they said, well, we got to keep the cameras rolling. So there you have it uh let's hope that never happens uh you know with any of your investments hey listen you were saying that you're going to talk about later about marseille i'm very interested in your thoughts about that what do you, what do you make of it because one of the things that i talk a lot about uh on the pod and and obviously in other channels is that i know marseille very well i i, I you know you know growing up in england i, I used to go to france a lot and marseille is a, such a proud city of you know multiculturalism, very hardcore fans, as obviously you saw from a negative perspective uh, a few weeks ago. But what do you make of it? Because it, it, it really, to me, is all about identity. You need to represent that city, and that's the complete opposite of what happened so far. Yeah, it's a tough situation. I think that it's very easy to come in and just blame the American owner. And don't get me wrong, I talk a lot publicly and I criticize a lot of American ownership groups for things they do wrong, and I'm sure McCourt. Uh, has done some things there that he probably would take back. I think it's a it's a tough club. You have a fan base that has incredibly high expectations for that club, that that's a club that's in the Champions League, that's competing with the world stage. And I think McCourt's come in more recently and said, look, we, we got to run the club a little bit more financially stable and made some cutbacks. And clearly the fan base has not taken that well. Obviously what happened at their training facility was completely unacceptable. And I've never seen anything like that in, in football. I mean, you deal... I talk a lot about the differences between supporter culture in North America and Europe. And I mean, having your fans storm your tra uh, training facility is, is so bad in so many different ways. I mean, if I'm a player looking to sign at Marseille in the next window or the window after that, I'm looking and saying, shit, I don't, I don't want to worry about that. I don't want to worry about the right. safety of me and my family. So, I mean, I think that the coaching decision that's been kind of a mess, um, they've made some poor decisions. So I think it, it really, to me, will depend on how they react to the situation, French football in general is an absolute disaster right now with the media rights deal. So they're just in a really tough spot right now. And I think there's probably enough blame to go around. Um, but you're right. I mean, that's a huge club that should be top three in, in Liga every single season. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's, let's have some more positive uh, uh, angles here. Let's talk about clubs that you think are doing well, uh, you know, around Europe, some clubs that perhaps, you know, uh, are not getting enough limelight on, on how well they're being run. I would say, and I talk about this a lot, Brentford is such a freaking well-run club. I mean, they've won, they haven't lost a game in the championship since like October. I mean, obviously being a very small part of the Swansea City ownership group, I'm kind of hoping they drop points somewhere here, but every <laughs> game I watch, they win. I mean, they should have beat Swansea two or three weeks ago when we drew them. Um, it is remarkable what they're doing considering they sold 60 million pounds with the players over the summer. And they're, I think they're better than they were last year. Um, you know, they've got rid of their academy. They've had a B team structure for quite some time. They've done an incredibly savvy job of recruitment around continental Europe. They bring actually a lot of players in from Scandinavia. 
We'll see how they pivot their recruitment strategy with Brexit coming up and it being more difficult in the future for them. Um, they have a new stadium open, which of course they've not been able to commercialize yet quite, quite yet with COVID, but um, they do things really smart. They use data really smart. They're really efficient. Again, I don't know the ins and outs of their financials, you know, if they're making money today, but I would be shocked if they don't go up this year. Um, beyond that, you know, I still think Liverpool does a really good job. I know everyone's been critical of the way they played this year and they are struggling a bit, but I still think they're probably easily the best American-owned club in Europe. They use data really well. You know, I think something they do that a lot of football clubs kind of overlook is they're really good with bringing in good people and human capital. You know, whether it's you know, coaching staff, whether it's the CEO, they had Peter Moore there for a while. Like they bring good people in, really sharp, savvy people. And guess what? You're going to have success. So those, those are the two clubs I would point to, Brentford in particular. Yeah, Brentford, top of the championship right now, as you mentioned. Uh, Ollie, Ollie Watkins is a good example of that. They buy him for so cheap. And look, it's a record signing for Aston Villa and replaced again by Tony, who, you know, lower leagues and now doing the same thing. Absolutely. And Liverpool's a very good point. I totally agree. I think people forget just how well run that club is. Um, listen, is there, do you think there, because aside from the American investment, you're right, you, you'd have to be living in a cave to also not realize that American playing talent is growing a lot. Is there a symbiotic relationship there? Do you think mutual beneficial, especially in the future, uh, the more American investment, the more American products are going to come to Europe? I think so. Um, I think, I mean, look, there were a lot of the, the Brian Reynolds rumors. I mean, there was, did he end up, I think he ended up going to AS Roma. Did, did he sign with AS Roma? Which, he yeah. did. He did. So American owned club that uh, he went to. Um, I know Fiorentina was interested, another American owned club. Um, I think they're not mutually exclusive. I think the wave of top American talent going to Europe has happened anyway and is happening. And I give a lot of credit to people around American soccer and MLS for what they're doing. Um, but yeah, there's always going to be an interest from an American ownership group to say, hey, can we leverage our connections, whether that's on the ownership level or the sporting director or coach, to bring in good American talent, especially the bigger clubs that have the check sizes to bring in top young talent. So I, I think there's definitely a correlation there. Um, I mean, a lot of these European clubs are looking to grow their fan bases in North America too. And they realize, hey, if we have Weston McKinney on our team, our television ratings, our social media presence are going to explode. So it's kind of two sides again. It's, you know, is that player, of course, a good player? And now the quality of the player coming out of the U.S. is quite good and good enough to play in the Champions League. And can that player help grow our brand in North America? So it's kind of a win-win for all of these ownership groups. So uh, Swansea has a very good uh, history with Americans, obviously, Bob Bradley, but now Paul uh, Ariola and, of course, Jordan Morris. How much of a say did you have in that one? Uh, I had no say whatsoever. <laughs> um, yeah, I know... Uh, I know uh, Peter Tomazawa, who's the president of the Sounders, pretty well. He's he's a small investor of Swansea as well, and I know behind the scenes he was working a little bit on that. But um, yeah, I mean, I give a lot of credit to the to the majority owners of Swansea and their connections in American soccer to get them over. And I think yeah, we'll see. Um, I, I think the timing is right, especially with Jordan um, coming over at this age and this maturity level. I think you can see already, although it's, of course it's way too soon to tell, but you can see that he has the strength and size and athleticism to really do well in the championship and do well at Swansea. It's going to be tough. I mean, especially with COVID, uh, I mean, Swansea's playing two, three games a week and it's fixture, fixture congestion. And a lot of these teams are, as you know, in the championship, sometimes they're playing shit football. Um, but I think I have a really good feeling he'll do well. I think Ariola did pretty well coming on yesterday, even though the game was kind of over. Uh, so it'll be good to see how he does again, coming off a pretty serious injury. Yeah, I agree, especially with Jordan Morris. This uh, Jack Harrison thing with me, with him and the championship. I feel like he can really take advantage of that. Um, another question I had for you, which I didn't plan, but I, I wanted to ask actually, because I'm thinking about it a lot, is 
how much uh, are these owners, investors, do you think uh, should be putting if they're not already into the women's side and, you know, the, the, the women aspect of everything? I'm just thinking specifically about uh, the WSL as well, the way that it's growing, uh, you know, even after, uh, you know, the 2019 World Cup. How much is there uh, on the attention side to the women aspect of things? I think it's growing. Um, you know, the American group that just came in about Burnley, I just saw today that they were putting an investment or more energy into their women's side. Um, there's an American, not American, there's a Danish American guy who owns Charlton and he has pretty invested pretty heavily and talked a lot on social media about investment in the Charlton's women, women's team. So I think there is definitely more interest in the women's game for sure, especially in Europe. Um, obviously we see what's happening in the NWSL with Angel City and there's a lot more interest in the women's game. So I think I think it's totally um, at the early stages in terms of uh, interest and invest from an investment perspective. But you know, I, I was reading very recently, I think it was in Norway when they had the renewal of their television deal for their top division and their national team. Yeah. A pretty good chunk of that deal was for their women's professional league and their, their television deal went up 2X. So you're starting to say, okay, if I own a first division team in a country like that, you know, maybe the women's team, just like maybe my esports team, can actually be a real business and something I would want to spend some time and energy. Again, you have ownership groups, and I completely get it, that want to say, look, women's soccer is really important as a kind of more well-rounded piece of our organization, but you do have other you know, investment groups that want to make sure it has a strong financial component to it. So I think as the women's game grows and becomes more popular, it's going to make even more and more sense for investors to spend more time and energy and money on that side of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, listen, let me ask you about City Football Group, right? The Goliath that is City Football Group, uh, investing in, you know, South America with Bolivar in Bolivia, but also everywhere else. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, we can talk all we want about, you know, strategy and ideas, but there's no substitute for money, right? Like, is it how... How how do you uh, envision? How do you? What are your judgments towards City Football Group and just everything that they're doing, uh, not just within Europe but also all across the world? Yeah, it's a good question, um, and they're obviously a very complicated group to kind of dissect because they have so many different motivations. They're obviously financial is one of them, and geopolitical reasons of what they're doing as well. I think what's really interesting, not a lot of people talked about the Bolivar situation in Bolivia is they're actually, they're not buying, but they, they didn't buy Bolivar. They're it's kind of the strategic partnership through Maurice Claire, who's with Inter Miami. And it's kind of like, hey, can we come in and, and help professionalize your organization? And I'm going to assume they're doing it to get an access to pipeline of talent. Although but it's kind of debatable to me if Bolivia is the strongest pipeline of talent you can be. But you know, they have, um, I think it's uh, Montevideo City in Uruguay. They're building a club down there with some pretty interesting infrastructure. You know, I think you got to give a lot of credit to what they've done. I think a lot of people underestimate how difficult putting the money piece to the side, how difficult it is to execute what they've done on a global scale. Um, you see the kind of players that they're moving around, the puzzle pieces moving from NYCFC to South America, you know, over to Europe. And you're not seeing as much hitting Man City because that club is just such a, at such a high stratosphere. So, you know, they have a club in Australia that is reasonably popular. It's just hard for me to evaluate without understanding what, what, how do you quantify success for City Football Group, right? Is it City, is it Manchester City winning the Champions League? Is it them being one of the best clubs in the world? So that's the case, like they're doing that. Um, is it developing young talent to sell? They've done that a little bit, but I mean, it's got to cost them hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to build what they've done. And so it's, it's pretty unclear to me if, if the financial piece of it makes any sense whatsoever and what the long-term strategy is there. So 
I would say in general, I'm pretty positive about it from the outside, but it's really hard to tell, to be honest. Yeah, in a way, I guess it's like a bigger uh, example of our, our our conversation a little bit earlier with uh, Rexon, right? It's like what happens when the lights go off. I mean, that's great, but it's a very good point that Bolivar is not owned by City Football Group. It's just that they've created a partnership, and I think that would speak a lot, especially after post Brexit. What what do you make of that, by the way? Just you know, now post Brexit and the European interest in, I guess, in more South American talent, just because or North American talent or non-European just because there's no disadvantage anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think clubs in the UK are going to have to get smarter. It's always been pretty challenging, in my opinion, to be a club in the UK, even going down the food chain, because, you know, you don't necessarily, this is what Swansea's done really well. And Swansea's always had a very, very good academy is they have a cashman area to grow their club and, and get players. You know, they can basically draw from all of Wales. I don't believe Cardiff has a top level academy. So They've done a fantastic job as a club of developing young players. They don't necessarily have to worry about the big clubs from London coming in and taking their players because it's a four or five hour drive away. Basically, every other club in the UK, the clubs are on top of each other. So it's really hard to have your own distinct cashman area and develop your own players. So how are you going to do things differently than any other club? And what clubs like Brentford have done is gone to continental Europe and found players from other markets. It's going to be really difficult for them to do that. So I would anticipate to your point, a lot of these clubs looking towards markets where it's easier for the players to get work permits like South America. I think they're just going to have to do a savvier job in domestic recruitment. They're going to have to do what Brentford does, right? And said, so look, yeah. guy, Tony, he scored 25 goals for Peterborough in the lower division. Like, hey, that's the guy we need to sign and we need to be smart about that. Um, they're going to have to do things differently because it's just, it, there's they have no other choice. And that's, again, my general from an investment perspective where I run into some Roadblocks when it comes to UK investment is it's just there's limitations, especially now with Brexit, in terms of how you can differentiate yourself from a player recruitment perspective, from an organization perspective, because all these clubs are basically trying to do the same thing. Yeah. Would you ever consider hiring uh, like a Ted Lasso? <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, what I will say about Ted Lasso is that he builds culture and motivates people. And I think that's severely underappreciated in professional sports and European soccer. And of course he's a fictional character, but um, I'm, I'm all about culture. And I think of course, tactics is important and everyone talks about, you know, fight, you know, is it a four, four, two or four, two, three, one. But I think look at Bielsa, right? I mean, you've tweeted about this. We've talked about this on social a bit is that what he does, he has a distinct way of playing and yeah, it's not for every player, not for every, you know, every system, but like what he does, he does it so well. And he motivates those players and like, this sport at the end of the day, it's about motivating men, right? And how do you do that? And it's a lot more difficult than, than people think. And that's where that kind of Ted Lasso thing, well, it's a joke. It's not a joke. Like it, he motivates people. Yeah. It's a very, very good way to end this. Uh, Jordan Gun, uh, Gardner, uh, entrepreneur, investor, co-owner of Denmark's uh, Helsingborg. Thank you so much for being on Kego Lasso, my friend. Thanks, Louise. Appreciate it. Hey, everybody. I want to thank Jordan Gardner for joining me today. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Kegolasso Pod. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a rating and review. We're also on Spotify and Stitcher. We're on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Kegolasso. We're on cbsports.com. Have a great, great weekend. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 